So here's a weird idea for you today. I believe in Jesus Christ. Say that with me, even if you don't believe it. I believe in Jesus Christ. A lot of you see that and go, that's not a weird idea at all. That actually seems like the most regular, common, prosaic idea I have ever heard. But I want to challenge you that I think it's a lot weirder than you think. I think it's a lot weirder than you're poising yourself for. And as you dig into it, I think you're going to find out that it is far stranger than we are used to. God is fundamentally different. You can divide all things that exist into two basic categories, God and everything else. God is somehow fundamentally different than his creation. And people who are born of God are different too. Because when God comes into someone's life, he starts to do some God things in there and change us from the inside out. This certainly includes how we live, but it also includes what we believe. And at the core, I think, of the most different thing that someone born of God believes is this statement. I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus once asked the question, who do you say I am? Now, there's a number of answers to a question like that. In Jesus' day, people were saying a number of things. His detractors were saying things like this. He's a false teacher. He's an illegitimate nobody. He's a blasphemer. He's a madman. He's out of his mind. He's in league with the devil. But see, there was a lot more people who were saying something else in Jesus' day. People who weren't jaded by their predispositions against who he is and what he was doing. They were saying other things. And so Jesus asks his disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? And they said, well... You know, the word on the street, Jesus, is that some are thinking that you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, that great prophet, that prophet who was calling people to repentance. And you've got to remember, people did not have Instagram in that day. They didn't know necessarily what John the Baptist looked like. They didn't get to see pictures of John the Baptist preaching at the Jordan on the 6 o'clock news or on their news feed. All they knew was the stories going around that this prophet has been sent by God and he is calling people to repentance and hearts and lives are being changed and some are going, I think that's him. That might be John the Baptist. Others were saying, no, it's Elijah. You might remember that great prophet Elijah back 800 years, 750 years before the time of Jesus. That great prophet Elijah who was a man who never died. Only two people, to my knowledge, can claim that, having never died. One is a guy named Enoch. You'll only read about him in the genealogy in Genesis, so that's gripping. You probably haven't looked at that. And it just said he walked with God, and then he was no more. Isn't that like the weirdest thing in the world? What does that mean? And then you were no more. The other was the prophet Elijah. He was taken up to heaven direct in a chariot of fire. How I would have loved to have gotten footage on that. And people are saying what Jesus is doing. These Elijah-like miracles. 
going, is he back? Or was he hiding out in the cave for the past 800 years? Or like, like is, is, is Elijah back? And others are going, no, 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 no. He's Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. People were saying all kinds of things about Jesus. People today have lots of ideas about Jesus too. You'll hear people say things that he's a wise teacher, a sage, filled with the wisdom that, that's transcendent through the ages. You'll hear people go, he's a rabbi. You'll hear others talk about him as some kind of philosopher, and still others as some kind of apocalyptic revolutionary. You'll hear some call him a prophet. Others, a man of God. People look to Jesus and are attracted to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Some see Jesus as someone to learn from. Some see Jesus as an ideal, someone to emulate their life after. Some see Jesus as someone to bring them comfort. Others as someone to be with. Others to bring them hope. And all of these are wonderful things, but there's something deeper, there's something more transcendent, or if I can put it this way, there's something more core to the identity that we often take for granted and miss. Every year during Advent, for the past several years, we've had a service. We often do it on the last Wednesday, right before Christmas Eve. We'll call it the O Antiphons or something like that. And, and basically what this service seeks to do is root itself in some ancient prayers around various titles or names for Jesus. Because Jesus, throughout the Bible, is called all kinds of things. And it's part of the service. By the way, has anyone ever been to this? You've been to this, right? One of the things that we've started doing over the years is as we would go through this time of worship on a Wednesday night together, what we would do is we would recite all of these titles and terms for Jesus that you'll find through the Bible. Here's a selection. All of these are titles and terms. It's a lot of reading. <laughs> Drawn straight from the Bible in reference to Jesus. And on this Wednesday night, when we typically would do this in past years, we would do a lot of reading. We would, uh, we would break it up, and we'd go through it. No, I'm sorry I can't make the font bigger, but I wanted it to fit on one slide. And I'll also say this isn't exhaustive. There's more you'll find in the Bible. But I bet out of this list, a lot of you gravitate towards certain titles or names up here as the way you think about Jesus. And I'm just going to take a stab at this this morning. Here's my kind of like best guess. My bet is most of you, when you think about Jesus, you think about him as a friend. Can you see that? Is that visible? Uh, some are saying yes, those saying no. Um, go to an eye doctor. Some, God with us. Emmanuel is how you would say that in Hebrew, of course, but... Uh, it's the concept that's really more important. You, you think of God as someone who's with you. 
That's what's central. That's what's important. Savior and Redeemer are almost so given their cliche, yet no less important because of it. Others, you think about them like a brother. Maybe there's another on this list. But Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And the implication or the rhetorical answer he's looking for in that question is not whoever you want me to be. And Peter says this, who do I say you are? Who do I see is your primary identity? It's this, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Because at the foundational root or the common denominator of all these titles is this, Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. And if your understanding of Jesus does not start with him being the Christ, I, I would suggest to you that you may be missing the core identity of who he is. And so those ancient creeds of old would start this way, I believe in Jesus, Christ. It is the pivot point on which the Gospels turn. And I would argue that it is determinative to whether you understand really who Jesus is or not. So let's unpack this a little bit. Let's get into this term, Christ, because it's not Jesus' last name. We, we know that, and we can chuckle a little bit about that, but you know, there's people here who don't know, so don't laugh at them, all right? It's okay to not know things. It really is okay. And you can come to a place like this knowing very little of the Christian faith or with misconceptions of the Christian faith and all that it entails. And this is a place that we want you to know that you don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed about that. You can learn in that journey. We talk about Jesus Christ so much that it feels like last name. Hi, guys, I'm David Gadini. This is Jesus Christ, right? But it is not a name. It is a title. And the title simply means anointed. Jesus Christ is the same as saying Jesus anointed. Or maybe Jesus, the anointed one. Doesn't really help you, does it? Back in the Old Testament, certain people and certain things would be physically anointed to set them apart for a special purpose by God. It was literally a physical act. We don't really anoint much anymore, do we? We don't talk about anointing much anymore. I bet you haven't like been anointed or done anointing in the past 30 days. Agreed? But in Jesus' day and far before, they would know what it was referring to. What they would do is they'd make a special blend of oil. They would take an olive oil base and, and load it up with all kinds of special, like, cinnamon and spices and kind of like, you know, brew it on the stove and make the house smell really good or something like that. But it was a special fragrance that they would then pour over something or pour on someone's head as a way of marking them as set apart by God. Have you ever had someone pour olive oil over your head? It does not wash out very easily. We did that to someone here at Fellowship of Faith once. It was a lot of fun. He had this big beard that got into there. It was great as clothes were ruined for life. Imagine this oil 
seeping into you, into your pores, fragranced, so you start to smell of it. You can't wash it off because you have been set apart for this special purpose. It is not something strictly ceremonial. It is not something you can easily discard. You are marked. Are you with me? And so certain people in certain things would be, would be anointed. They would be set apart by God for some special purpose. The sanctuary that I was reading to you about in Exodus 36 earlier today, it was anointed. This was a special place, a holy place, a place where God was going to dwell. It was set apart for a special purpose. It wasn't a place to have a slumber party. It wasn't a place that, ah, my 10, I lost it. Can I borrow yours, Lord? No, 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 no. This is set apart as the place where God will meet you. The things that would fill that tabernacle, that sanctuary, they would be anointed to the Ark of the Covenant. That special pot that would burn incense. The holy items, the holy things, but people would be anointed to. The priests who served as middlemen between Yahweh and the people. Those who carried out, they would have the oil poured upon them. They would be anointed too. Even on occasion, prophets would be anointed. Sometimes the Bible would use it metaphorically. There's this one time, there's a pagan king called Cyrus who had been set apart by God to rescue his people Israel, and he is called God's Messiah because Christ and Messiah mean the exact same thing. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. Both words mean the same thing. Anointed. This Cyrus, of course, never had oil poured over him by a priest or a prophet, but it was God's way of saying he has been marked. He has been chosen. He has been set apart for my special plan and purpose. And no one was anointed more in the Old Testament than Israel's kings. In fact, the term Messiah became synonymous with king because it was the primary way people saw the anointing happening before them. The kings were God's messiahs. I think of Psalm chapter 2, where they're even called the sons of God themselves. These kings were chosen by God, set apart for a special purpose, marked to protect their people, to rescue God's people, to lead God's people into truth and righteousness, to establish justice and righteousness and the kingdom of God in all it was intended to be among their day-to-day life. They were the ones marked by God to bring God's blessing and goodness and way of being in and to lead people in it. And so when we say Jesus Christ, what we are saying is Jesus the anointed or Jesus the king. Every time you hear the term Christ Jesus, go King Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Every time you say Jesus Christ, think I am saying Jesus the king. Are you with me? And this is the fundamental way that the Bible describes Jesus. This is the fundamental interpretive move the New Testament makes. This is the foundational way the early believers got to the core identity of who Jesus is. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe 
in Jesus, first and foremost above all other things, Jesus as king. And so when Jesus asked that question, who do you say that I am? The foundational insight given by God above to Peter answering that day is you are the Christ. You are the one chosen by God, set apart by God. You are the king. Do you fundamentally think about Jesus that way? Or is your springboard into understanding him and relating to him based on one of those other names that we had on the screen that I shared with you today? Do you see him more foundationally as your friend? Someone with you? Savior? Redeemer? Brother? Those are wonderful things and certainly true. But if that is the lowest common denominator or the core foundational identity of how you approach Jesus and understanding Jesus, you're a few degrees off center and possibly missing something that might now be strange to you because this is where it gets weird. What Jesus said, what his first followers said, what we are saying is that a peasant man born in Palestine who was executed 2,000 years ago was set apart by God to be the king of the universe, the king of the multiverse, the king of all space and all time. That is the claim. And it can be strange. Weird, certainly, to someone who isn't a Christian, but also I find often to people who are. How does your approach to Jesus shift? To fundamentally this, he is my king. How does your approach to Jesus, Jesus, and understanding the work he does and continues to do as being fundamentally this, to bring in God's kingdom. That's what he's inviting you to. And that's what's central to this claim. So back to the question. Jesus just asks, Jesus doesn't just ask his disciples 2,000 years ago, he asks you today. Who do you say I am? Is he your king? Do you see him as one bringing God's kingdom? Do you see him as one with authority over heaven and earth? Do you see him as one who is able to conquer and drive out darkness and the forces behind it? Do you see it as the one, him as the one who is able to do what we cannot? I think today it's very common to think that what one person can do, another can do. And I really love that phrase. That we are all the same. 
Some might be better at something, but with enough effort, enough time, enough skill, enough energy, enough education, what you can do, I can do. In many ways, that proves to be true. But the message of the Gospels is that Jesus is fundamentally different. Like us in every way, yet different. And that he is able to do what we never can. He is able to accomplish what we are not strong enough or able to do for ourselves. That he does the work of a king to protect, to save, to lead, to guide, to rule. And the fundamental invitation is to see him as our king. Expect of him what we would expect of a king and submit to him as a king. To give him our fealty. To give him our allegiance. To obey him. Both when it's comfortable and when it's not. This is fundamentally what the word faith means. When the Bible talks about faith, that's all it means. Giving loyalty, allegiance, and fealty to Jesus as king. Maybe that's weird for you today. Maybe it isn't. Regardless, I'd invite you to start fundamentally thinking about Jesus this way because this is how he is different and this is the different idea that he invites us to have too